All right, this is a special edition of Congress Studios, and uh, we are with Jennifer Shett, a budget and appropriations reporter from CQ. Uh, we're also we're on what site. You, yeah, what do you? Po- is this pot? Do we pot? We're potting live. We're podcasting. We're, on we're not the live. Road. We're right. We're on the road. We're at Silly Feathers. Um, down uh, just off the Rayburn building on what street was this? I don't even uh, know. This is First Street, New Washington. It's First Street. Yeah. yeah. South. South. Right. Not New Jersey. Yeah. Anyway, come on uh, by. So Good we're, beer. we're live at a beer. Right? We're, we're, we're at a bar. We are live drinking. That's exactly. We're live drinking. Is exactly right. Got special on victory this week. That's so. right. So um, we've got like literally four thousand things to talk about. So we've decided to talk about two, um, and we're going to start real quick with what everybody's been discussing, which is impeachment. Uh, the House just finished up two weeks of public hearings, which has been a culmination of a process that started in late September. Um, and so we're sort of at an interesting spot because we've seen a lot of the investigations and facts come out about the impeachment process and a lot of the scandals been coming out. Uh, we're, we're in this place where the Democrats have made an ex- a very, very strong case for their for wrongdoing and for impoundment of funds, if we're going to bring it back to Jennifer. Right? At least according to them. That's right. right? Well, 88% of the funds were being... No, no, no. They've made a strong case. The Democrats have made a strong made case it. according to them. Yes. And this is the other side of the coin is that this very, very strong case that they put out is moving no Republicans. No. Right? Um, so, Will Herod has announced he's against. Um, I don't know that Democrats uh, have announced... Uh, or even moved one Republican that's not formerly named Justin Amash, the former Republican named Justin Amash. Um, And he was already there, so he didn't get moved. (laughs) Exactly, right. He was already there. And so uh, what does this do? They might pick up their two holdovers. If you remember, the impeachment inquiry was voted on. You had uh, Jeff Van Drew from New Jersey vote against the resolution and Colin Peterson vote against the resolution. Both those districts are, like, hugely conservative. Right, Trump won uh, Colin Peterson's district by 30 points. Yeah. Right, so he's, like we know why he's voting against. He, maybe they picked up them, in the but it's not really clear that anything else happened. So uh, somebody else pick up. So I mean, you know, you you had a lot of evidence presented. Now the Democrats are trying to figure out how to move forward. The, you, you see kind of two different narratives. One that there are holes in what they've decided to do. Um, there's more data that they could put together for this. Um, and then another one, which is that to keep the momentum going, they need to finish this up as soon as possible. So it seems like that second narrative is the one that's winning out, and that we're going to end up with uh, the information pushed from the intelligence community, which is very unusual for the committee other than judiciary to be dealing with impeachment. That information is going to be pushed through the judiciary committee, and those guys are going to be tasked with coming up with articles of impeachment to actually what are the actual crimes and misdemeanors that we believe high crimes and misdemeanors that the Congress believes or the House of Representatives believes that uh, Mr. Trump has done, and then maybe they'll vote on that on the House floor before the end of the calendar year. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, there's a chance that they may vote on that the same day that they're voting on keeping the government open. Who knows? Could yeah. be a fun day in, in December. It could be very low stress. Just, <laughs> you know, one or two people covering it from the gallery. <laughs> right, yeah. No editors yelling into cell phones and typing in all, all caps and slack. Nothing like that. It's not like it's the week before Christmas when all this is going to go down. So it's like nobody has any plans or anything else. No, no non-refundable flights or anything like that <laughs> happening. Mm, sounds like personal experience being put forward right now. Um, well, what's so, been, what's been interesting about this is... is in previous impeachment inquiries, you see some movement among, at least public approval, right? Um, the president's approval drops or it increases um, based on the information that comes out. 
And what we may be finding right now is that the president started the impeachment process at about 42%. And now that we've wrapped up the first, at least, scheduled round of public hearings, he's at 42%. And so, I mean, there's almost been literally no movement over the course of these few weeks. There's been minor, minor fluctuations, but it's really, really hard to nail down that like, there's been any movement at all. And what we're potentially finding out that in a partisan era with partisan media, uh, it's just swaying people via public opinion is no longer a feasible strategy. Because um, this is this is wall-to-wall coverage on all the networks and all the cable news we're covering. It. It's just that it hasn't moved anymore. And, and the viewership isn't particularly high either. Um, I think that there's been no John Dean moment here. I mean, some people tried to say Sondland's stuff yesterday, about two days ago now, um, saying that, yes, it was quid pro quo, but it wasn't the president who said it. Had some people vaguely interested, but I think everybody's seen... This is a train on the tracks, right? And we know where it's headed. We know every station along the way, the House is gonna have their hearings, they're gonna put the articles forward, it's gonna pass the House with Democratic support, and it's not gonna be confirmed in the Senate um, with the two-thirds majority that's necessary. So everybody kind of knows what the narrative arc is gonna be, so there's not a whole lot of interest in following the individual details. That being said, there were seven TVs in our office that were on it. Um, and so, and luckily they were all off by about a second and a half each, so that was a fun concophony to have. Um, but, you know, so for the people who are within 20 miles of where we're sitting right now, this is really interesting and important stuff. I just have the sense for the rest of the country, more than 20, 25 miles from here, people really just didn't care that much. And I think what we'll find out is whether that occurred at Thanksgiving tables. Right? And that's what most of these members are going back to. They're going back to their communities. They're going to go to their own families. And it'll be fascinating to see when they come back um, in a week and a half whether there was discussions about this at the dining room tables. I think it's possible. I mean, my very scientific, empirical take on this is it takes about a week and a half for polls to catch up to the news. I don't know why. There's no reason for that. Just like watching polls, it takes about a week and a half to two weeks for the polls to actually start reflecting public events in a significant way. And I could be wrong about that, but it'll be interesting to see what this right recess week looks like. Um, one of the things that's also important to keep in mind is that it's much harder to move people in the House than it is the Senate, right? So the House has, they lost all, the, the Republicans lost all their moderates, which means they're not all their moderates. There's Will Hurd, right? Peter um, King, and retired. Peter King-ish, right? Um, so it's a uh, it's a lot of a lot of very very hardcore Republican districts being represented in the House, and you can't expect the same dynamics to carry over to the Senate, which is interesting. Uh, they've just announced, or at least the White House announced, that they're going to have a, at least a full hearing, <coughs> which means they can't dismiss it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the other way to read that um, after a hearing with a bunch of Republican senators. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, but um, I, at this point in time, it's hard to see Democrats picking up many Republican votes in the House, which kind of dooms it in the Senate. It's just a question of, is the acquittal going to be on a party line vote, or is it going to be a majority that, that uh, votes to convict, but he's still acquitted? because the two-thirds threshold. Um, and does anything new come out if the Senate does some investigating on their own? Because they will do some investigating on their own. They did during Clinton. Um, so you would expect that the, the managers over on the Senate side will take a look at this carefully as well. And also, this, the other fun little dynamic for the pre process geeks, John Roberts, as the Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice, is the one who presides over the Senate while this goes yeah. on. Um, John Roberts has never presided over a trial before. Somebody told me once. I haven't checked this out what? to make sure it's true. 
He's a he's a ju- I mean, he was I don't think he came out of the judiciary at least at this level. He didn't come out of out of a, a ju- he was in a um, he was in the appellate courts, right? So he was never a trial judge per se. Right? It's one thing to be an appellate judge, but I think he came out of loss out of the legal practice into the uh, into the appellate. So I'm not sure that he was ever a trial judge. You can fact check me on that. Please send your emails to Congress two beers in at gmail.gov um, <laughs> with your complaints about that. Um, but so what could happen is, is this could take weeks, could take months, um, especially if they're going to have a full trial. And oh, by the way, we have a continuing resolution that ends in December twentieth. Yeah, we have about four weeks. And, and what are they figure this all out? And what are the odds that we'll have all the appropriations bills in place so that can be cleared before the Senate has to deal with this impeachment thing? All twelve? Sure. Zero percent chance. Yeah. <laughs> How many do you think are even possible to get cleared? I think it depends on when they get agreement on the all 12 subcommittee allocations. This is something they've been working on for a really long time since they got the total amount of non-defense discretionary and defense discretionary spending back in July. There's been a lot of disputes about, you know, how to divide up what is roughly 1.37 trillion between all 12 of the bills, and that's something that they've been struggling with. They're planning to continue talking through the Thanksgiving break, but it doesn't seem likely that when they all come back following Thanksgiving on that Monday, um, that they will have agreement on these 302Bs, and so that just leaves them three weeks to figure some out some type of spending bill and pass it and get it signed if they're actually going to avert another partial government shutdown. Right. Well, this is this is something I wanted to talk to you about because we just went through impeachment has been all over the news, um, and it was basically overlooked that we almost shut down the government this week, right? And it didn't. It seems like a secondary news story at best, but really no one was paying attention to the fact that the House didn't get their CR done till Wednesday, is that yeah, right? And then right. Thursday, about six hours before the government actually shut down, and the president signed it when. Like so eight, the, nine, he signed ten? it around. So the so House set it over on Tuesday, that. and then Wednesday was that really fun day yes. for all of us um, <laughs> who are being treated like the middle children of the newsrooms um, <laughs> in terms of legislative shell drama, which is, I know, something that the average American can really Listen, relate we to. We get really worked up about this in my office. I'm yes. telling you, we were arguing. That's right. Mm. Um, it was, but, it was yeah. a fun time. And then, yeah, the Senate passed it Thursday, late morning, early afternoon, and then he signed it around 6 p.m. on Thursday. So, you know, we came about six hours of a funding lapse. And really, there was no, there's normally tension around these things. There's normally the main networks kind of tune in. And countdown clock. Right, somebody's yes, got a countdown. Yeah. And Multiple can, cable networks. Yeah, and you can kind of, like, feel all this pressure mount around congressional leaders and certain Trump administration officials in terms of, you know, your one constitutional work requirement here is to fund the government. Um, and so there was just really none of that. Like even amidst all these issues about whether or not they kept it on this legislative vehicle or put it on a commemorative coin bill or another appropriation <laughs> shell. There really was just like throughout that entire thing there was still like it's still gonna pass on time. Right. It's still fine. Right. It would have been fun if it didn't. Right? That would no. have been even more. That would, <laughs> would have been, not even have more. been fun. I mean, that would have been a hell of a news cycle, right? Basically, like, as somebody testifying. Jennifer testifier, would not be our guest right, right, right now. Right. We're running out of funding as, <laughs> as we testify our impeachment. That would have been super interesting. So, um, what was the, the big issue, if we could just get really procedurally geeky here for a second? Yes, please. Right? So, 
Um, basically, they were using the Commerce Justice Science Appropriations Bill right. as the vehicle to pass the CR. Yes. The problem is that this vehicle, this bill, uh, which is really several bills, like a mini bill. It's four, right? it's yeah. Four. Um, is the only one that's passed both chambers. Correct. So they want to save this yes. for the omnibus that they say they're not going to pass later on. Correct. Yes, right. Yeah. So this is all very funny. So the staff of these committees are basically insistent that they're going to pass several mini buses or small packages of like three or four bills. And that is all hogwash, right? Because um, it's going to be an omnibus at some point. But they wanted to save this bill so they took the legislation they wanted to move it over to the committee of coins so somebody's not gonna get their coin unfortunately I guess not it's never I mean the house could always pass that bill standalone at some point in time right I forget who it was they used to do this with um, somebody's firefighter insurance fund yeah they did that once who I forget the member who they stole it was a Republican I want to say from that. it could have been Peter King no it wasn't Peter King okay. but anyway they stole his bill twice to do like a debt ceiling or an appropriations bill. I'm like, dude, never, I don't know if you actually got his program. That's why John Stewart came to town and just, argued for the it was additional the, it, was, it was for uh, It was for smoke jumpers, though. Oh, right? smoke so jumpers, it was Somebody out west. Okay. Um, in any event, that was always entertaining for me because I am very, very, very good at this. But, um, so we had all these procedural things and we're shutting down and basically we still have no agreement. So what is the extent to which you believe that impeachment is basically eating up the oxygen in the room and the appropriation stuff? Or is it merely like they just can't get basic stuff agreed upon? I don't really fully accept the argument that because impeachment is happening, all of a sudden appropriators cannot focus on these subcommittee allocation So you believe right? like, Congress can walk and chew them? To some degree. To some degree. Okay, fair. Right, and so in, I mean, in terms of leadership bandwidth, that's where the real question of this is to me, because especially on the House side, I mean, Speaker Pelosi, and she does have a pretty large staff, right? She has a lot of really smart people working for her. Same thing with Leader McConnell's office and Schumer's office. And um, so they have a lot of people working on this, but in the House, you've got 12 spending bills or some type of hybrid package that needs to get passed by December 20th. The USMCA negotiations are relatively serious and ongoing and constant at this point in time. She's got articles of impeachment coming to the floor and then a whole series of other investigative stuff and legislative stuff, for lack of a better word, right? And so there's... And then over in the Senate, we've got nominations for days. So both chambers have other things going on that are leadership priorities. Um, so these conversations have predominantly so far been among the appropriators. And we know from talking with Richard Shelby, the Senate Appropriations Chairman, that he really isn't paying attention to the impeachment trials that much. That's one thing we've heard from a lot of senators, that if they're going to be jurors when it comes over from the House, that they don't want to prejudge. Or I, I'm not really sure. And we'll sure pretend that. like that's real. Right, yes, we can pretend whatever we want. <laughs> That's exactly right. Because well, we control the mic. One of the interesting things about this dynamic is when the media suddenly shifts its attention to something like impeachment, all of a sudden the rank and file are hearing from a very, very different set of constituents and a very, very different set of things, right? So they're getting mail about whether the president should be convicted or not, whether he should be impeached, what was wrong, what was right. And what you've done is a basically eliminate a lot of the rank and file pressure that may have been on leadership and or the appropriations chairs to, to 
further these negotiations down the line. Uh-huh. Like right now, it just seems like Shelby, who's the appropriations chair in the Senate, and Nita Lowy, who's the appropriations chair in the House, yeah. are doing this on their own, essentially. I mean, it seems like a lot of your stories are quoting them and almost nobody else. Yeah, I mean, at this point in time, I would have expected more meetings with leadership and more involvement there. I know leadership staff is in the room. They are looped in on this, so I know that that's happening. But typically at this point in time, this close to a a Christmas, late December deadline, this would really be almost solely kicked up to the leadership level, and there would be the four corners of them meeting, and it doesn't seem like that's happening right now. Um, And so that's one of the things that's just a little bit concerning to me in terms of how serious the spending process is being taken outside of the usual press conference floor speech talking points. Right. Like how how ready are our members of leadership to really get in the weeds with their appropriators and their appropriations staff right. well, I mean, and get this done. Right, I mean the good news is almost all the leadership has been on the appropriations committee before. The people that we're dealing with, at least in the majorities on both sides. Yes. Right. Uh, not necessarily yeah, the minorities so much. Yeah. Pelosi, McConnell, Hoyer um, have all been there on the committee before. So that that's at least helpful. So they know the game. Yeah. Right? And so you think that they can get up to speed very quickly. But it doesn't really matter how quickly you get up to speed. I mean, the, the, the likelihood of something by December 20th necessitates having stuff done, what, seven, ten days ahead of time to be able to move the paper? Yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, writing the final bill and, you know, laying out the bill and making sure you have, you don't have a shall where you shouldn't have the word shall or you don't have a comma incorrect somewhere, really making, like, you're writing law. There does need to be some attention to detail here. Um, and so that all takes time, giving members time to read it over, their, their staffs, let's be honest, to read it over um, and brief them and figure out how they all want to vote on this um you know i really think once they come back from the week-long thanksgiving break they've got two weeks to figure this out and then they need to know by the sunday heading into the 20th what they are going to do and they really need to release bill text that night if not monday before noon if they want to get they want to avoid a shutdown unless they just do another cr which then we have the issue of whether or not the white house will actually accept another cr and, you know, we did see a change in bipartisanship in terms of the House floor vote count and the Senate floor vote count on how many people supported the second CR. It was odd. I, I was, that was an interesting dynamic. What was, was going on with that? I was really surprised when I was listening to House floor debate. Um, Kay Granger, the ranking member on a, the House Appropriations Committee, Republican of Texas, she said it's with a heavy heart that I like, yep. rise in opposition. And I was, I was truly surprised that she was not supporting. It's really, great. I mean, and if you look at the CRS report and the really great chart that's in there that details you know every single year since fiscal 1997 they've started off with at least one CR and the, you know, the CRS the brilliant beautiful people at CRS who I rely on heavily to do my job um, have sort of you know a, a CR that lasts two CRs that last a total of 82 days in the fiscal year is not really out of line for what Congress is used to doing so I was really kind of surprised by that I mean I would kind of expect that on a third or a fourth CR heading into you know early or late spring that some that she may need to feel the need to rise in opposition especially as kind of a voice for DOD issues in, in the House and the Republican Party but I was kind of surprised she 
she dropped off on the second one. Right. Do you think that she was trying to elevate the yes. attention to it? Absolutely. Basically, like, yeah. uh, we can't keep doing this sort of thing. Like, if I'm not going to have like my rank and file members who are yeah. normally like the DoD supporters, uh, Congress, and like kind of like instigate and push for some sort of package that could cross the line to get at least fund defense. Yeah. She needs to do something crazy. Oh, that's absolutely what she was doing. She was really trying to get a message across to Democrats that like you guys need to get something real done for December because there might not be a really at all bipartisan vote on a third CR in that chamber. Just if we, you look at the numbers drop off from Republican support so, from the first to second CR. Right. So here's the question. That, that she's making the point that Democrats really have to get something done. Is it that they're lacking getting something done or there's some issues out there that are very intractable that are causing a major problem? Oh, there are huge issues. And let's be clear, this is the last full set of bills that's going to pass Congress and fund programs going into the 2020 elections. The entire House is up for election. A third of the Senate is up in the presidential race is obviously happening next year. So this is the last point in time for Democrats in Congress to make their stand on their border wall and on the other side of the coin for Republicans in the Trump administration to try to get as much additional money as they can for border wall construction leading into 2020. I mean, for as many tweets um, and the possibility that they set up a live, the White House sets up a live video stream of border wall construction, if that actually happens. Which the contractors really love to show off sure. what they're doing yes, <laughs> to their competitors. I can imagine they love that. Um, um, I think it's going to be, you know, the mileage that's out there, the actual facts that are out there for how Democrats have kind of held the line against approving a lot of money for border wall construction. Um, I think it's going to be problematic. Um, of course, that's if you live in a world where facts matter. So. <laughs> right. But you digress. I digress. Well, one of the things that's interesting to me is that, I mean, this is it's definitely a case where impeachment sort of eats up the bandwidth because there's negotiations, right? You're stuck on 302Bs, right? So you can't get subcommittees to have their allotment of money to come and write their bills. We're stuck on some pretty basic stuff. You would assume that it's been kicked up to the leadership level where McConnell and Pelosi and Schumer and McCarthy are all in a room sort of like hashing these deals out in a way that the appropriators have not been able to. Um, and in the meantime... Mitch McConnell is having meetings with the White House about how long the trial is going to be, right? Um, it seems like maybe Congress can't walk into it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, my strongest hope for December is that they can get agreement on the subcommittee allocations and that they can negotiate the defense appropriations bill and labor HHS and education bill, maybe a few other small bills in that package, and then they attach a CR to it, because I think the real challenge is figuring out what they can package that Trump is willing to sign instead of, you know, shutting down the government and where they get the votes. And I think adding defense and labor age together with the CR that they're inevitably going to need for part or not all of government is, could be beneficial. And so then you've got, then you end up with the confluence of events, right? I mean, then you end up with the impeachment trial hitting at the same time that you've got a CR that's continuing for these other places. Yes. And so if you've got a trial that lasts for two months, your CR almost has to last for three months, right? Yeah. Because you need a few weeks after. Yeah. And yeah. So you're looking at a CR until mid March? At least, yeah. <laughs> Which no one is going to like. No. So at that point, why aren't you just doing a full year CR? Well, at that point, you're six months. You're halfway through yeah. the fiscal year. I mean, they've done this before, right? I mean, this has happened, what? Not 
was it last year? It's the year before last. Two years, right. Two and years I think, ago. yeah, one important thing to remember in terms of when is the narrative of that we need to do these bills quicker is that if you remember after the 2016 elections, right after Trump got elected um, and Republicans kind of swept both chambers, there were a lot of outstanding appropriations bills that appropriators, Republicans and Democrats, wanted to finish during the lame duck. The Trump administration asked that Congress do a temporary funding bill, a CR, into the spring so that they could get into office and then have their input on finishing out those final appropriations bills and everyone agreed. And so I think that's another thing to remember is that yes, to the extent that CRs are bad and cost money, that's absolutely true, but this isn't like this isn't political in some way as well. Very political. One of the things that's interesting is that throughout this process, you've got a few writers in these bills that are causing a lot of hang up, right? Um, basically, you have um, the administration who wants to fund the border wall, right? Um, you have the Republican appropriations chair, Richard Shelby, saying we should do this up front, right? You have Democrats who are like, well, this is, we have language in every single one of our bills that prevents you from moving funds from these bills into whatever you want to do. So it's not quite like negating the emergency declaration, it's just saying that no funds from any of the laws that we pass can be transferred. This is one of the interesting things, like Congress has the power of the purse, and it's one of the, many people assume like, oh, well, Congress only pass bills in order to exert its authority, but like literally limiting the transfer of money from one account to another, or reprogramming authority, for example. In other words, like saying you can use this funds for a different program than what you originally thought. That's, a, that's Congress using its authority of the power of the purse that goes super underlooked, right? And this seems to be a very high profile example of that. Um, but it's also holding up the appropriations process. Do you think that at the end of the day, Democrats keep a lot of these riders that limit funds for the border wall in those bills, or do they capitulate and allow the president to shift funds from like DOD or their military infrastructure yeah, um, to a border wall? I think that is potentially the harder issue to solve as opposed to just how much, how many billions of dollars they're going to spend on border wall construction, right? The reprogramming issue really infuriated a lot of appropriators on the Hill, both Republicans and Democrats. Like, this is, you know, the classic joke that they're Republicans, Democrats, and appropriators. They are really kind of territorial about their constitutional authority over spending. But I don't necessarily know that, especially in the middle of impeachment, heading into an election year where they're looking to preserve the majority in the Senate, stem potential losses in the House, and keep the presidency, that they want to pick a fight over reprogramming authority on a principal issue, right? And so I think it's going to be really challenging in terms of actually limiting or eliminating the reprogramming authority that the Trump administration or the executive branch in general has, not only for military construction, but the other accounts that they pulled money from for the border wall. And we kind of have a straw man battle for this that you're seeing if you're watching the authorization process. I mean, there's always, d defense is the one place where we actually authorize it every year. And so we have the National Defense Authorization Act, which is up for reauthorization. They're trying to finalize it today a bill, um, and there, there was talk at the beginning of the week by the chairman on the House side that we will finish it up by this week. 
um, but it's unclear because one of the biggest issues is this reprogram authority. Even though it's not the money itself, it's the authority about how to move the money. And again, it is it is the proxy battle for this that is really holding up a lot of the uh, the rest of the defense authorizations. Which means without the authorizations, it's harder. You can't do new projects. There's no other authorities that can be changed. And these guys are used to doing this every year. So you've got a lot being held up because of this wall and the idea of moving money and money was moved and do we backfill where the money was moved from. Um, it's a bit of a sticky wicket. Well, I mean, I'm not sure how they get past this. I would love to see Congress like assert its authority, but it seems like they're unwilling to do that on any right? so, Sorry, I've been wanting them to do inherent contempt for like ever, and it's just not happening. And it's super depressing to me. But it seems like this may be one of those things that they may have to capitulate on in order to get a bill across the line. And it's not clear that they're going to be able to get it, get it right? Um, even though that... I'm not sure that impeachment helps the president politically. In other words, like, it's unclear to me that the House is in a worse position here, given what the president needs to do with his Senate colleagues, which is basically shore up debate, or shore up his, at least, his, his support with the Senate. Um, this seems like a perfect time for the House to assert its authority, but that's not necessarily what's going to happen, right? Um, and it just seems interesting that... Uh, the appropriations process is stuck on again a policy writer that has nothing to do with appropriations, right? Um, this is again a function of like other bills not moving, right? Right. Right. right? If you, you could like literally do this process through a normal authorizing process, so like saying yes we'll do this or no we won't, then that would be one thing. But uh, appropriation is the only thing that gets done. In this case, not done. Right, so we're stuck here on another policy writer, like waiting for funds to come through for a full year on a budget that we already have agreed to. And, and Jennifer, you think I can get you on the record to say that the uh, FY21 appropriations bills will be late? Yep. Right before the election. <laughs> that, that, that's not a hard one. Yeah, I right? can't imagine that they would do anything before the election, right? I would be really surprised if they did a big package of full year bills in September before leaving town for the entire month of October and right. several weeks in November. So what that means is if we did a full year continuing resolution for some of these agencies, right, which is not outside the realm of the possible for FY20, which is what we're in right now, you could end up with the beginning, the first quarter of FY21 being the money that these guys were given in FY19. Yes, absolutely, which no one is going to be happy about. I mean, that's going to be a really frustrating thing in terms of projects and um, long-term planning and trying to just do new things. I mean, it's just, it's going to be really frustrating for appropriators and for anyone who's in the discretionary budget to have to deal with this. We're starting to see, uh, I just want to transition to something a little slightly different. I mean, we're seeing a lot of older members retiring. I mean, we see that every time. But I think I'm, it feels to me like we're seeing a few more of the gray beards retiring than normally do. And I think this frustration um, is boiling over into that. They're seeing that there's nothing they can get done in the House specifically. Because the Senate, fascinatingly enough, we really aren't seeing retirements. Well, they're a pretty good amount, right? You got Enzi retiring, you got Alexander retiring, Isaacson's retiring. Isaacson's retiring, but for health reasons. <laughs> yes. So right. there was a really nice two. moment between Isaacson and John Lewis on the House floor the other day, where I don't know why Isaacson was on the House floor. He's a former member, I believe. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I'm not saying he can't be allowed there, but like he was there. 
Yeah. <laughs> we were just like notable to see a senator yeah. in the House chamber. And I believe Lewis was saying something nice about him departing Congress, essentially. A really nice moment where the two of them hugged and yeah. There, there's a, there's some retirements over in the Senate as well, and it seems like basically the old guard of the Republican Party are significantly leaving yeah. um, office. Um, they're not taking the Justin Amash route necessarily, um, but it's one way to leave the party. Cer- it certainly seems like many of the, the people that are leaving, like Kenny Marchant, uh, uh, Tom Conaway, or Mike Sensenbrenner, right? Sensenbrenner, uh, King, like a lot of the people who are like the old school Republican defense hawks are leaving Congress, and that makes it very interesting in terms of the appropriations process because a lot of the member motivation, if you will. Uh, to move a lot of these bills is dissipating from one party, or at least it seems like that. Well, but even on the Democratic side, right? Let's look at the House for a second. We've got two retirements at the very top of the, the House Democrats. Yeah, House Appropriations Chairwoman Nita Lowy is planning to retire, and then Commerce, Justice, and Science Subcommittee Chairman Jose Serrano is retiring as well. And Pete Vlaskowski yes, is retiring. Yes. So, I mean, Defense. we're losing three of the top five or six. And, I mean, Lowy's retiring after only being chair for two years. I mean, she spent her whole career to get to this point. And just like the chairman before her, yeah, she's leaving after only two years. It tells you something about the power of the Appropriations Committee at this point, at least in the House, it seems to me. It's, it's fundamentally shifted, right? I mean, and I think this is something that goes understudied, but people wanting to be a chairman of a committee is really great if that chairman is actually writing a law. Right? Yes. It's like it's it sucks otherwise, right? It's, it's it's a lot of responsibility. Yes, you have power, but if you can't use it, what's the point, right? And there's it's it's fascinating to talk about Rodney Freelingheisen and Nita Lowy retiring after two years. When you contrast this with the history of the Appropriations Committee, and there's this anecdote that I read in the Congressional Record way back in the day about a member of Congress sitting around in Congress and finally getting on the Appropriations Committee after serving for like six years. So he finally gets on the Appropriations Committee after six years. He's like, I. Finally made it. He's like, it's like, and he's looking around the chamber. He's like, I made the appropriations committee. I'm gonna be on it next Congress. He's like, and he started like, you know, well, what does it take for me to get some real power on the appropriations committee? Well, I gotta be around for a while. And the appropriations chairman at that time is a guy named Clarence Cannon, a Democrat from Missouri. And he came walking into the House chamber. And Clarence Cannon, at this point in time, was like, like 60, late 60s. Like he, he had hunched over. He was really diminutive to begin with. He was actually a former House parliamentarian, which is. And what, what time? Became, this is the 1950s, 60s. And so he was a former House parliamentarian. He wrote Cannon's Presence. Anyway, he became appropriations chairman. Um, and this member sees this old, hunched over chairman of the appropriations committee walking into the chamber, like kind of like gingerly going or whatever. And he's like, well, it can't be that long until that guy leaves Congress and I can actually move up the ranks. Like, it's not going to be that bad. Clarence Cannon was chair of the Appropriations Committee for another 14 years <laughs> after that anecdote. Um, and that's the kind of institutional power that he had. You pass a bill every single year means that your power is huge because you're passing that many bills every single year that many people owe you it means you have that much more power to influence other laws and people kind of like like to diminish the aspect of like how much power or prestige or literally just passing bills matters to members of congress but it does it's what you're relevant for and if you're not passing bills then you're no longer relevant to a significant degree either your constituents 
or to your other members or to the nation broadly speaking. And we all know these old people like have egos, right? So the point being, yeah, just ti- tiny ones, small ones, slight ones. A little ego. Right. A little ego around this town. And so it is amazing to watch two chairmen of arguably one of the most powerful committees in the entire Congress walk away after one term in yeah. the chair, after waiting 30 years to get there. So, so real quick, and we'll probably finish up on this, what do you see in the race to succeed Lowy in the House right now? I think that is going to be really fascinating. Right now we have Rosa DeLauro, Labor HHS Education. We have Marcy Captor, Energy Water. Um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, military construction and VA, has entered, and um, David Price, who's transportation and HUD, has sort of signaled he's interested, but he hasn't said anything officially. There's also various rumors about Betty McCollum, interior environment, but her office maintains that she has not made a final decision yet about whether or not she wants to, you know, seek that top Democrat. Her office maintains that she has not yet made an announcement. Yes. Okay, good. and the announcement would be the correct way to say that. Yes, thank you. The decision's probably been made. Um, so I think it's going to be a lot of Democrats, and I think the challenge for them is going to be to differentiate themselves from each other in terms of what they're going to do for the committee, um, Congress as a whole, the party. Um, and I think that's going to be really fascinating. I think another thing, I think it's, I think everyone generally thinks that the House is going to lean Democratic next um, Congress, so it's likely that they will be seeking the chair spot and not the ranking member spot. Um, so I think that's going to be interesting. <coughs> I also think who is in House leadership next time will be interesting. Coming into this conversation, there is a very large, lengthy conversation about whether or not Speaker Pelosi, how long she should um, get this leadership role again. And she needs two-thirds of the caucus this vote in order to maintain her position as Speaker. Yes. Not just a majority of the, yes. of the House well, caucus. I've heard caucus. that that was what was agreed to, but that was never written down no, into the caucus rules. I mean, so here's the thing. Nancy Pelosi evidently agreed to this condition with the insurgents, right? Going back on that would be pretty much a nail in the coffin for her, potentially. Um, so that's bad. Fair enough. Now, what has not been written down are the term limits for the majority leader, the majority whip, or any of the other leadership spots. So whether Steny Hoyer or James Clyburn are on the hook or not is a totally separate question because that has basically was supposed to be a rule that Democrats agreed to, which they never agreed to. Um, but how would you handicap this race for the appropriations chair? There was a tweet recently that upset me because it was not historically accurate. But <laughs> I know. I mean, Go figure. But it, the tweet was something along the lines of, like, seniority rules the House. Because... Nope. Exactly. Carolyn Maloney rose to Elijah Cummings' vacancy at the Oversight Committee. Which, the tweet itself overlooks the fact that Cummings had leapfrogged Maloney in the first place to become chairman of the committee. And this is going to be a really interesting one because everybody wants it. Marcy Captor is the most senior. Needle Lowy actually leapfrogged her. Yeah, that's the, that's the point I want to be make. Right, leapfrogged her to be chair. So who would you game this out, right? So technically, if you were to go by seniority, it's Captor... Price? No, DeLauro. Captor, Deloro, Price, and then Washman Schultz several runs down. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Few, yeah. She's few pretty far down the seniority list. Right, so it would take a huge political act. But you were saying the leadership is it's still matters. matter for some of this. Right, seniority that? matters. Yeah, seniority is a factor, but so is fundraising and connections um, and kind of the vision for appropriations and how that lines up. And I think 
if Speaker Pelosi is still Speaker next Congress. I think it's a, a sort of benefit to Rosa DeLauro, just because if you remember back in the early 90s when her and Nita Lowy and Nancy Pelosi were all kind of learning the ropes of the Appropriations Committee and coming up in the House together, they were called the Delosis. So they were very close. Um, they still. She, I believe Delora Delora still chaired the Steering and Policy Committee, or parts of that. She did when uh, yeah, a few years ago. She may ago. still be there. She may still be there. But that is like, if you are chairing the Steering and Policy Committee for House Democrats, it means that you are like really freaking close to the Speaker of the House. Yes. Oh, there are no other way to interpret close. that. Yeah. Yeah, so I think in terms of if I had to put money on one candidate right now, I would probably put it on Rosa DeLauro, um, but that's not, I mean, if there is a scenario um, where Speaker Pelosi is not the speaker, then I think that really changes the calculus in terms of what is the new the new roster of House Democratic leadership, what do they want, um, and I also think it's going to be a really, I mean, I really think a lot of this has to get sorted out after the November elections, right? Because are you following in kind of Nita Lowy's footsteps of being a counter to the Trump administration, or are you working with a new Democratic presidency? And I, those are two very different tones, two very different personalities, two very different sets of appropriations bills. And then, of course, if the Senate's still Republican, which is possible to likely at this point in time, I think that the relationships that these people have formed with key appropriate Senate Appropriations Committee members and key members of Senate leadership is also going to be crucial because you've got to get the bills through both chambers or you get a shutdown. And regardless of whether who's the majority of the Senate side, there's nobody's going to have 60 votes. Right. And assuming the legislative filibuster stays in place. Right. A lot of assumptions. There's big assumptions. In any event, uh, this wraps it up for our special Bullfeathers edition of Congress <laughs> Two Beers In with Jennifer Shutt. I uh, hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, see how it looks like.